doing. Uh, and we're especially pleased to be able to host uh, the series of speakers uh, that this GAP uh, is, is bringing here. So I would like to, I will turn it over uh, to Charles to introduce tonight's speaker. I'll give a little commercial for, uh, for Charles, though. I know somewhere in the back is a sign-up sheet um, if you're interested uh, in getting further announcements and information about ISGAP. Please be sure to put your name on it uh, and your contact information before you leave. We have got quite a lineup for next semester as well, uh, so I'd encourage you to, to uh, sign up on the information list. With that, Charles? So, Joel, thank you very much for hosting the semester. This is the last uh, seminar of the semester. So we're off to a, a slow start, but it's beginning to pick up, and I hope the next semester, so with David here, and the next semester we have some really good programming. The second semester starts January the 31st, and we're moving from the European Ashkenazi world to the Sephardic world. We're doing a, showing a film uh, about Iraqi Jews and the connection between Iraq and actually the uh, Ba'ath Party and the sort of Nazi regime and Arab propaganda and European anti-Semitism, how it's been exported to the Middle East, which is becoming unfortunately more and more timely. So there's a, an association. So you know, I often start off my talk, my introductions to speakers saying, you know, it's a real pleasure and an honor that so-and-so is here, but it's really, really true. Uh, <laughs> it's usually true, but it's especially true with uh, David. Uh, David Katz. Um, so I met David when we were at Oxford together uh, a couple of years ago. Um, and, it a, <laughs> and it was a pleasure to uh, befriend him there, and it's uh, it's wonderful that he's back here. I'll read his bio, but I think more more importantly than sort of the the positions that he holds and the work that he did, the books that he's done, and the important actually very crucial work he's done with Yiddish and the Yiddish language and linguistics, etc., is his commitment to dealing with issues of anti-Semitism uh, and ensuring that the record, the historical record, is kept straight and kept honest. And we can see we're living in a time when the history of the Holocaust and the history, history of European Jewry is in, in flux, unfortunately. The issues of contemporary anti-Semitism are things that people don't want to speak about and people seem to be content on modifying even the history of anti-Semitism and the history of the Jewish people and David is in some cases alone but very powerful and a very important voice for seeking and maintaining truth. So it's in that spirit that scholarship is really about uh, and in that sense it's, it's, it's a privilege to have David with us because this is what a scholar ought to be, somebody who's pursuing truth. And David, I, I, from my heart, and I know, encompasses it in everything he does. And he, he sacrifices uh, a lot in, in seeking truth and justice. And there should be, this is what a, a professor, a scholar, ought to be and must be. And we're living in a time, unfortunately, where there's fewer and fewer people willing to step up and, and seek the truth and to shed light where there's darkness, and David encompasses that. He's a renowned scholar, as you know, of Yiddish language and culture and history, especially Lithuanian Jewry. David became, began his distinguished academic career as an undergraduate at Columbia University, where he studied Yiddish linguistics. After that, he went on to do a doctorate degree at the University of London, 
on the origins of the Semitic component of the of, to Yiddish language. He was for this work he was awarded the John Marshall Medal in Comparative Philology, Philology David taught Yiddish studies at Oxford. That's where he met, met him, and he built the Oxford program in Yiddish, which grew into the major recognized international program under his directorship. Later, it's another story. He pioneered post-Holocaust Yiddish um, dialectolo dialectology, dialectology, close enough, and fo folklore exp uh, expedition, and he, and he ran folklore expeditions into Eastern Europe, amassing, and he, he amassed thousands of hours of recorded interviews in Yiddish and different forms of Yiddish, which I'm sure David will speak to later. He's a claimed scholar in Yiddish linguists. Uh, 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 his, uh, his accomplishments are numerous. David relocated in 1999 to Vilnius, where he took up the chair. It was a new chair in Yiddish language, literature, and culture at Vilnius University, and uh, founded the University Center for Stateless Cultures, which uh, published many acclaimed works on literary <coughs> culture uh, and, and related issues. And I was actually a, a guest there in 2005, which was a great honor. Um, He's worked as a human rights activist and he focuses on contemporary ver versions of Holocaust denial and Eastern European anti-Semitism. His work has included on-site protest and monitoring of state-sanctioned neo-Nazi parades in Lithuania and in Latvia, and the defense of Holocaust historian, as an example, F -F of Ephraim Zoroff from the uh, Simon Wiesenthal Center, uh, Israel, Israel office. And if you remember, the Lithuanian government actually charged uh, Ephraim Zorov amazingly for libel, um, which was leveled by a twice convicted Nazi war criminal whom Zorov had exposed. In 2008, David began publicly challenge, challenging his, his term, I believe, of uh, double genocide theory of the Second World War and accusations of Holocaust survivors who had survived by joining Jewish partisans. It's on these subjects that we are extraordinarily pleased to welcome David for his insights. Welcome. Thank you so much, Charles. Charles said so much of what I came prepared to say about him, but I will say one, one very important point. I have come to learn, working or fighting in the trenches of Eastern Europe the hard way, that there's a big part of the field today called anti-Semitism studies that is run by people who are afraid to stand up to anti-Semitism. And anti-Semitism is not exactly biology or chemistry. There is a moral underpinning of the idea that racism is wrong, that anti-Semitism is wrong and evil, is part of what you have to be able to bring to bear if you're studying this field. Charles alone in North America has brought together high academic standards with the moral backbone to stand up. And we both know that when you do that in life, there's opposition. And as we say in Yiddish, how do you translate that? We have Miriam Huffman here all help me. You have to move on, move on. First you have to spit. First you have to spit. But then we have to go into the whole folklore and a little bit later. Um, the title tonight is Holocaust Obfuscation, the 21st century version of denial. It's about a new form of exotic anti-Semitism in Eastern Europe. It, it hates local Jews, but not all Jews. It 
distorts and inverts the Holocaust but doesn't deny it. In short, it's a lot of trickery paid for by governments and big institutions to change everything in an elegant way and to get as many Nochschlepper as possible from the West. Now, the connection between Holocaust denial and anti-Semitism is something very established that I don't think we need to go into here. Um, there's never a neutral or good motive when someone starts saying it's all not true that they killed all the Jews of all those countries. It's an invention. Um, so that, that's established. When the Soviet Union began to collapse in the 1980s and you had the rise of the new nation states, many of which are today members of the European Union and NATO, a whole bunch of scholars started studying the new anti-Semitism in this part of the world. And when I read their stuff now from the early 1990s, I see that they mostly did catch what was going on. They understood that these very nationalistic small nation states in Eastern Europe, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Romania, Hungary, so in some cases the Czech Republic, and others, um, want to cover up their collaborative roles in the Holocaust. They want for the Russians and the Jews to be the bad guys of history, not the Nazis and the local collaborators, which is themselves. And they were beginning in the 1990s to work up ways to change the whole history, something that becomes easier with the, the, the march of time because survivors are disappearing, witnesses are disappearing, perpetrators are disappearing. So this is a variety of scholars who, who've looked at this. Um, I don't know, two of my favorite books from the early 90s are, here we are, uh, Rand Randolph Graham's anthology where he has different essays on different uh, countries, starting with his own excellent overview of Eastern Europe, and then the papers from a 1992-93 conference uh, in the Czech Republic. And it's interesting that they foresaw the trend, but nobody would have predicted that the fake new history would win over so much of the modern academic and political world, or that so many Western and Jewish hangers-on, fellow travelers, nochschlepper, whatever you want to call them, would be persuaded to go along with it. Now, when you speak to specialists in Eastern Europe about anti-Semitism, they'll begin to quickly to use a very dangerous word, one of the words I hate most in the English or any language. It's complicated. You know, like on Facebook, your relationship, either yes or no, it's complicated. Well, there's anti-Semitism, and you know that this is a new country, we need our independence, we have to build our nation-building motives, and, uh, and it's, uh, you have to forgive a little bit on the sides that they, they, they trying to take pride in their own and see the things wrong with others. Then you have a kind of anti-Semitism that denies its anti-Semitism because it says it's only about the locals and some local issue. Um, and the most common in Eastern Europe is, we love you. You're from America. You're Jewish. You're fantastic. You're from Britain. You're from Israel. I love Israel. Oh, the local Jews, they are all communists. They think that we murdered their families and that the Russians, the communists, saved them. And as we'll go through the history briefly, we'll see that's exactly what they think because that's exactly what happened. <laughs> but, um, finally, 
that this new anti-Semitism is covered up so successfully that Western Jewish, Israeli scholars and organizations can be persuaded to come on board as apologists. They can be persuaded because there's investment in Jewish research, in grants for research, in conferences, in symposia, and people like getting medals from the president and the prime minister and free trips and being made to feel a god in Eastern Europe. This especially, I'll try to be very diplomatic here, it's not easy if you're from Brooklyn, and I hope that 18 years in Oxford and 14 in Vilna did not too much damage to the Brooklyn spirit. Uh, so let me see how I would say it. Especially, quote unquote, happily married middle-aged males are susceptible to these fantastic summers of glory in Eastern Europe. Okay, so I'll uh, leave it at that. Now, the Eastern European narrative of World War II that we call double genocide, some of us call it double genocide because it says there were two equal genocides, so it seems to be a neutral and fair name. Um, the older informal versions, if you've ever traveled in Eastern Europe, is the Russians were much worse than the Nazis, and most of the Soviet big shots were, you know, Zrabinovich, Abramovich, and Litvin, the one who changed his name. And, and in Lithuania, there are dozens of articles claiming that Gorbachev uh, was Jewish and that Putin is Jewish, and the real name is Pesachovich. So this is a huge obsession that anybody Russian or communist is really Jewish. The Judeo-Bolshevik uh, nexus is very much alive. The informal things, they were all NKVD, the forerunner to the KGB, they were disloyal, and one of the most common and for outsiders neutral sounding, 1940 came before 1941. 1940 is when the Soviet Union annexed the three Baltic states and other, and 39 and 40 other uh, states in Eastern Europe, parts of Ukraine, Romania, and so forth. Um, and this narrative says the Soviets committed genocide against all the peoples of Eastern Europe, helped by their partners, the Jews. Then in 1941, the Nazis came, and yes, we helped them. So everybody's even. It was a tragic, complicated time when everybody was killing everybody. So it all becomes postmodernist mush. And that's what sadly many lines. Okay? Um, so Holocaust denial is simply not viable in places like Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, Belarus, uh, Western Ukraine, and many other parts of Eastern Europe where there's a mass grave near every town where all the Jews were shot and, and uh, put into, where older people still remember it, where there's not a single Jew for miles around. Uh, in other words, denial never came into it in these places. It's much easier to deny the Holocaust in places like France and Germany where people were deported. And there is no big mass grave right outside the town. Okay? Um, not to mention that France and even Germany had much higher survival rates than the Baltics, which had the highest, the highest rate of murder uh, in, in Europe. So I call it Holocaust obfuscation, a movement to confuse and confound everything to write the Holocaust out of history without denying a single death. So it's certainly not denial. Now, in the three Baltic states, the percentages of Jews killed were the highest in all of 
of wartime Europe, around 95% in all three countries. That's because of the massive voluntary, not only collaboration, but participation. When we talk about collaboration in Holland and France, we talk about, for example, evil people who told the Gestapo that somebody's hiding in the attic. It could be about evil police who accompanied their neighbors to the train station. All kinds of terrible evil things. But in these countries, it was providing tens of thousands of voluntary killers to do the killing. And it was after that quote-unquote success in, the, uh, in June, July 41, that the, the Holocaust actually got underway in the sense of actual genocide. And, and half a year later, it was decided on at the Wannsee Conference in January uh, 42. Um, this is from my other life as a Yiddish dialectologist. I would always love to, sh to shove in front of my informant old maps from the time when he or she grew up. And then we could always impose new lines of all the borders that changed later. So this is a big part of the area we're talking about. Lithuania, part of Latvia, northeastern Poland. So from 1920 to 1939, the whole Vilna area was in Poland as was a big part of what is now Western Belarus, Brisk uh, or Brest, Grodno, Grodne, Pinsk uh, were all in Poland. The Polish Republic had more than three million Jews and, um, and as we see, was very big. Um, it was a relatively stable time compared to before and after, <laughs> although very many uh, problems did exist. That border, by the way, between Lithuania and Poland was the worst border in Europe. It had a six-mile no-man's land and um, no, no diplomatic relations because of the dispute between the two countries over the Vilna area. Now, on the 23rd of August 1939, the Molotov-Ribbentrop line was made by Molotov and Ribbentrop, and that's the northern part of the line with which Stalin and Hitler secretly carved up Eastern Europe. So according to that secret agreement, there would be two areas of influence, or to put it more bluntly, two invasions. The Soviets would come from the east and take everything up to the Black Line. The Nazis would come from the west and take everything up to the Black Line. And that would be the new. This is a slight simplification, because there was an annex in September. But we're not going to go into the details. This is a summary of it. Um, it's, it's a little telescoped in the sense that the deals of October are included here, too. Um, but something strange happened. The Nazis quickly they started the war against Poland on September 1st, and they quickly took everything that was theirs, according to the pact. The Soviets, on September 17th, came and took everything else, but they very kindly stopped at the borders of Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia. They didn't want a bloody fight with these nationalistic countries, so they started playing tricks. We'll recognize your independence. We won't occupy you. And in the case of Lithuania, the trickery was worse and worse and worse. This is important because it leads to the understanding of the bitterness. The Soviets said to the Lithuanians, not only will we not invade your country, you know that dispute you had with Poland, that border? We're going to give you Vilna. Call it Vilnius. Call it whatever you want. And we're going to give you the whole area as a gift. So in October 39, Stalin gives that area, as you see, um, the Vilna area, to uh, Lithuania. Um, clever Lithuanians understood what was going on. And they had a phrase for it in the 
very difficult Lithuanian language, Vilnus Musu Lietuva Rusu. Okay, Vilna will be ours, but all of Lithuania will be Russia's, because the same agreement also demanded that Lithuania provide space for Soviet bases to protect it. Now, the um, Nazification of the Nazi sectors, of course, started immediately with a lot of killing, with massive humiliation, with incarceration in ghettos. The Soviets, on the other hand, imposed Soviet law, where everybody's treated like you know what. Okay, so, but equal before the law. Um, so you have all kinds of memoirs. The Soviets came in and suddenly it became illegal to say the word zhit, the dirty word for Jew. You get a fine for saying zhit. So the whole Soviet occupation was very bad. Synagogues, Hebrew schools, religious institutions closed down. Many, many people of all ethnicities deported to Siberia for being petty bourgeois exploiters, in other words, owning shops. So it was very bad, but nothing to compare with, with, with Hitler, of course. And then, um, in the summer of 1940, having softened up the Baltics with all the tricks, the Soviets fake three elections in all three Baltic states, and they become Soviet republics, and the original Molotov-Ribbentrop uh, line comes into full effect a year later. Okay. Then the Nazis invade the Soviet Union on 22nd of June 1941, Barbarossa, where in the mind of every East European Jew I've ever spoken to is when the Holocaust starts and when the barbarity of actually killing everyone in sight starts. And um, in Lithuania and Latvia, the widespread murder of civilians started on June 22nd and 23rd before any German forces had actually arrived there. About 6,000 people were killed in those quote-unquote pogroms. I don't know if pogroms is the right word because it's the onset of the Holocaust, of killing men, women, and children, neighbors because they're Jewish. That had never happened. In fact, Lithuania and Latvia and the old Grand Duchy of Lithuania had the best record of tolerance for 600 years, and that continues to mystify many scholars today. Now, why would people today in modern Lithuania, Latvia, and Estonia be investing millions of euros, dollars, whatever, into changing the history? First, nationalism, national pride. Um, if you think about it, we in America were not always mature about telling the truth about African Americans and about Native Americans. and um, now, there's the maturity where you don't have to say, we have a perfect record, we never did anything wrong to anybody in order to be a proud American. But that didn't come overnight. So in these countries, there is this thing, we were always the victims. We, our people couldn't have been part of anything like the Holocaust. National pride. And don't you dare say that that's a part of our history. Second are special kinds of racism. I don't dislike Jews and Russians, but after all they did to us, we have to get our side of the story out, that they were disloyal. So there are the special kinds of East European races. Now the third factor is the most important of all, because more and more young people are arising to be middle-aged and into important positions in government and academia, and they have all hit on the same idea. Wait a minute. 
the threat to our future security is Putin's Russia, which is becoming more and more authoritarian, less and less predictable. Well, if the Soviets committed genocide the same as the Nazis, and the Russians today are the heir, the successor state, the same way post-war Germany was a successor state to Nazi Germany and had to pay all those reparations, be an international pariah for half a century and all that. Let's do that to Russia. Okay? So in the geopolitics today, very many Lithuanians have met with me in the last four years that I've been active in these things. Dovid, why don't you understand? It's our national security. Just shut up. And I said, how is it your national security to, to lie about the Holocaust and to accuse the local truth? And he says, we have Russia next door. You don't understand what that means. So a lot of this third crowd doesn't care that much about nationalism or racism. They're convinced that it's their national security to have this new narrative that the Russians are the committers of genocide, the same as the Nazis, double genocide, two holocausts, or whatever you want to call it. Okay, now, in, I'm going to go through the revisionist events in Lithuania, but I want to make a few personal comments. First of all, this is about the Lithuanian government, the establishment, not about everyday people whom I have found in the capital in Vilnius to be fine, to be charming, full of humor, full of tolerance. It's like two different worlds for me, the nice people you meet on the street and all the creeps in government, academia, the arts, in other words, the elites of society. I have found it very, that, that, that's one personal comment. The second personal comment is that a lot of this is true of Latvia and Estonia, but not quite as much for some reasons we can go into later, but to keep it, to give an example, I'll speak about Lithuania, where I've been living for most of the last 14 years and have observed on the ground many of these things. I'll try to combine the events with the line of argument developed. First of all, what is genocide? One of the first things the newly independent Baltic states did in 1990 and 1991 was take the American and Western Europe aid dollars and euros they were getting and invest them in genocide institutions whose first job was to redefine genocide so it would include Soviet crimes as well as Nazi crimes. Uh, in Vilnius, this involved a big genocide research center that's the most prestigious sexy place to work when someone who's only 30 gets a job in the genocide center they feel so thrilled that they're in this exquisite exquisite job that pays well that has huge prestige i remember after being a professor for five years i used to start getting invitations come to the concert at the genocide center What's for a concert, genocide, I don't know, something, something, something strange here. Okay, um, this is from the first page of the Genocide Center's website taken a few days ago, 2012. Uh, if you can all see it, I won't read it, yeah? To give you an idea of the mentality of what they're doing. Which was the real genocide, I think it's... Freud called it penis envy, but now it's genocide envy. They think they have genocide, I have a better genocide, look at mine. And the Jews are still, they have their own country, how can you call it genocide? In other words, endless, useless mental acrobatics about the word genocide, 
by an academic institution. Okay, you don't see that. Um, Could you just go back a second? Of course, I'm sorry. Yeah. It says their ethnic groups survived. So if they don't, it's not genocide unless 100% of a population is annihilated? Well, this particular version seems to say that only time will tell if the results of the genocide are that this nation disappears. And we already see that the Jews have not disappeared as a result, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, that the Jews have not disappeared as a result of what the Nazis did, but we, we only time will tell whether the Soviet genocide of the Lithuanian people will have, will have shown to have destroyed the Lithuanian people. Okay. The argument gets more and more convoluted. For example, if you keep reading that page, you say, why did one million Lithuanians leave Lithuania in the last 10 years? Because of the incredibly bad economic situation left to us by half a century of Soviet misrule. It's always the Soviets who are guilty, uh, no matter what it is. So it's the redefinition of genocide, in this case, to the ultimate fate of a people who has suffered some calamity. And one of the reasons the Jews were killed is because they were communists. I'm sorry? They were, Jews were killed because they were Russians. Communists. Communists. Well, yeah. Okay. Um, then in the middle of Vilnius is a state-sponsored genocide museum where you read all about the revolt of June 1941 by something called the Lithuanian Activist Front. The Lithuanian Activist Front were Lithuanian nationalist murderers who put on a white armband and started murdering their Jewish neighbors on June 23, uh, 1941. Maybe they fired a few shots at the retreating Soviet army. The Soviets were running from the Germans, not from them. But before June 22nd, they didn't fire one shot at any Soviet uh, army uh, or personnel or, or officer or facility or anything. In short, this is a case of glorifying the perpetrators. They weren't really out to kill the Jews. They were, this was our glorious revolt against the Soviet Union. We got them out, forgetting the slight detail that the Soviet army was fleeing Hitler's invasion, not the Lithuanian activist front. Now, it's no secret that I came to this from Yiddish, and I came to this from my love not only of Yiddish, but love of Yiddish for me cannot be separate from love of Yiddish-speaking people and the last survivors and the last of the Mohicans from before the war. For the local Yiddish-speaking Jews, nothing could be more painful than this idea that the people who butchered their families before the Germans even came are heroes today in the country they are citizens. I mean, it's, it's mind-boggling. Okay. Um, the, the museum has many anti-Semitic 1950s cartoons with no curatorial comment. Uh, this one is a very Jewish-looking guy at the left, together with Stalin blowing economic bubbles and the disastrous Soviet economy from a soap dish with a nice little Mogendovit on it. Okay. Um, uh, sorry, this is a very bad photograph. This is a Jeep that's driven by Stalin, Lenin, and Zhidas Yankelis, the Jew Yankel. This is after the Holocaust, where there are virtually no Jews left in the country, that the Jews are conspiring with Stalin still. And uh, that is now in the museum as part of the revolutionary artwork of the underground of the late 1940s that did oppose Soviet rule, but many of whom were recycled murderers from 1941. Um, this was from an exhibition a few years ago and it was about Ukraine. Uh, 
in, in Auschwitz, we were given some spinach and a little bread. War is terrible, but famine is even worse. And that was the only mention of Auschwitz or the Holocaust in the whole museum of genocide. Okay. So a museum of genocide on ground zero of the Holocaust that doesn't mention the word Holocaust, and Auschwitz is mentioned as something that wasn't quite as bad as the Ukrainian famine. Um, uh, another state facility is the very the, the great fun park, Lenin Park, on the right it tells you all the stuff you can do there. Uh, what is it? Picture gallery, museum, and Luna Park. What's a Luna Park? Is I Coney Island? Anyway, um, it's full of historic placards about the history of Lithuania. So you see, this is typical to keep the traditional Jewish communist influence upon the Lithuanian Communist Party. That's in the placard about the history of the 1930s. Then, about the few Jewish partisans who escaped the ghetto to join the resistance, they are of course considered to be bandits here, Soviet activists, Red Army men, uh, some inhabitants of Lithuania, mostly of the Jewish nationality. <coughs> well, you get the idea. Um, by the mid-90s, this came to legislation on the definition of genocide. Okay? Um, the inclusion of deportations, the inclusion of long-term plans to get rid of classes of people. The Soviet Union tried very hard to get rid of what they considered the bourgeoisie, the clerical classes, the anti-social classes, the anti-proletarian, or whatever. So th th those were all true in theory in Soviet practice. They would never true in the sense of murder every man, woman, and child from these people, but in the new definition it goes in. And many of these laws, in each country it's different, include different Soviet violations of human rights as genocide. For example, in some countries in Eastern Europe now, if the Soviets didn't allow someone to work in their chosen profession but forced them to clean toilets for a living, that is genocide. Um, now, what are the ramifications of all this? So, countries make up a law of what genocide is. You don't agree, don't agree. There are many ramifications. Firstly, for domestic prosecutors can start having a field day. Um, not only Jews, Lithuanians, Russians, Belarusians have been prosecuted for genocide if they were working for the KGB at a time when an innocent person was deported. Now, you would say that they should be put on trial for deporting someone, but no, it has to be genocide. Now, where this became more dangerous, in my view, is when the export, the export started in the late 1990s to bring these new definitions and ideas and new history into European law, and we'll talk about that in a moment, and European legislation on history revision, or revisionism, or correction, depending on your point of view, which is very important, because if a law is passed that all the textbooks in Europe have to change, that affects kids in Britain, and France, and Germany, all over, not just in the Balkans. Um, now, in part, it was the Jews who started all this in the 1990s, when there were m many major Jewish organizations that had many more Holocaust survivors than are alive today, 
started demanding that the Baltic states own up to the truth about the Holocaust in their countries before they would be admitted to NATO, the European Union, the OSCE, and other international organizations. So, in my view, you can't force anyone to admit anything. They should never have done that. There are other ways to deal with it, but that's what was done. So, the Baltic states, and this is more true in Lithuania than anywhere, where they had one very prominent court Jew in parliament to go along with it all, um, was, okay, sure, we'll study the Holocaust, but you know we're going to study both genocides. Don't you hate the communists too, right? So the American, British, other people say, okay, okay, sure, no problem. And in 1998, three state commissions were set up, the commission destined for dominance, and I think this is right out of George Orwell, the International Commission for the Evaluation of the Crimes of the Nazi and Soviet Occupational Regimes in Lithuania. It's like the Ten Sons of Homan. You get a prize if you can say it in one breath. Now, why is it Orwellian? First of all, the parallelism of Nazi and Soviet crimes is built into the name, so there's nothing to study. Secondly, uh, it's the crimes of the occupation regimes, leaving nothing for the crimes of the locals and the local authorities. So it, there are many very strange things about that. Now this is a very high-level commission established by edict of the president of Lithuania, and this was true in Latvia and Estonia equally. And the one in Lithuania had a Jewish uh, chairman. And the need to attract a member who is a top Holocaust scholar and ideally a survivor was very high on the agenda. This will have no legitimacy unless there's one Jewish member of this commission. So they found the perfect guy, uh, Yitzchak Arad, originally Rudnitsky from Tsvencian, north of Vilna, survivor, resistance hero, major historian, and he was director of Yad Vashem for 22 years. So now, when Yitzhak Arad started getting telephone calls from the president of Lithuania, he was already a pensioner in Tel Aviv. And now when he tells his story, he says, I didn't understand why the president of Lithuania keeps calling me, that I can help reconciliation of our people's brotherhood, love, and you know, moving forward together. And for years and years, he was treated very well. He would come to Vilnius. That's in my apartment in Vilnius at one of the parties I made in his honor in 2001. Lovely guy, as you see. I think I made him pose, because he usually... Yeah, was, um, um, I, I forgot to mention, in addition to being a Holocaust survivor, he's a veteran of the partisans. He survived by escaping the Tsvenshan ghetto and joining the anti-Nazi partisans, uh, and then became a hero by the way of the Israeli War of Independence in 1948, and has many medals for his heroism in that war. 2004, Lithuania, Latvia, Estonia, etc., become members of the European Union and NATO. And 2006, I'm skipping many things because we'd be here all night otherwise, an article in a so-called middle-of-the-road newspaper in Vilnius, one of the mass circulation papers, has a front-page article, expert with blood on his hands. Now, this article said that Yitzhak Arad is a war criminal. Now, why would he be a war criminal? They bought his book in English, The Partisan, came out in New York in 1979, and there's a paragraph in the book, not about him, but about his unit capturing a high German officer and killing him. 
because the partisans in the forest indeed did not have the Geneva Conventions or trials or judges or anything else. It doesn't say he killed him. Anyway, that's the basis of the whole war crimes thing. Now, that was the first time after many very happy, simple years in Vilnius that I was very upset. But all my Lithuanian friends said, Dovid, it's a stupid newspaper, it's nothing, don't worry about it. But within a few months, the prosecutor issued um, an investigation, a pre-crimes, a pre-trial war crimes investigation. At the time, the Israeli government protested vigorously. Things have since changed, and we're going to come to that. Okay. Then, in 2008, a big campaign starts in the European Parliament to get rid of the Holocaust via the red-brown equation, double genocide, yes. Um, in January 2008, about a dozen members of the European Parliament got together in Tallinn, Estonia, and they came up with a declaration that said that um, victimhood of the of communism and Nazism has to be equalized, and never again must the famous words never again be not insured for victims of communism in the same fashion as they apply to those who suffered under Nazism. So this proclamation again gets to that uh, Holocaust envy, that why can't we say never, who said you can't say never again, say it, you know, but when major members of the European Parliament get together and issue a proclamation, it has moral force in the European Union. I want to pay tribute to the British cam campaigner for human rights, John Mann, uh, who on the floor of the House of Commons in the British Parliament condemned it uh, the same week, the end of January 2008. He said it's trying to equate communism and Judaism as one conspiracy and rewrite history from a nationalist point of view. He'd been dealing with them 20 years and he knew exactly, and he knows exactly what he's talking about. Later in 2008, um, about 30 major European parliamentarians, including two very famous people, Václav Havel, the famous liberal uh, founder of the modern Czech uh, post-communist democracy, and Gauck, uh, the present, uh, president of Germany, were among the signatories. And it has adjustments and overhaul of European textbooks, so children should be warned about communism the same way that warned about Nazism. So this is a proposal to change European law for all textbooks in the European Union. More from the Prague Declaration, that the, the victims have to be recognized the same way, uh, recognition that the crimes in the name of communism should be assessed the same way Nazi crimes were assessed by the Nuremberg Tribunal. In other words, we now need a Nuremberg Tribunal scale uh, tribunal or institution to judge communism, to make it all equal. One demand of the Prague Declaration actually was passed by the European Parliament a year later. Uh, that was the demand that the 23rd of August be declared as a day of common mourning for the victims of fascism and communism in Europe. August 23rd, as we saw earlier, is the, the day of the um, Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. And um, it doesn't say that it would replace Holocaust Remembrance Day, January 27th, but of course it would. There are not going to be two days in the year where people remember the victims of the Holocaust. Um, and uh, of course, for these guys, the liberation of Auschwitz is something to be forgotten because Auschwitz was liberated by the Soviet army. 
So how much more ridiculous is it going to get than that the liberators of Auschwitz are by European law of 2008 or 2009 equivalent to the murderers in Auschwitz? I mean, it gets to such absurdities that you begin to wonder what they're all doing in Strasbourg and, and, um, these, uh, and Brussels. Um, it went a little further in 2009 with the Vilnius Declaration signed at an OSCE conference in Vilnius with the votes of the United States, uh, Britain, Canada, in which they put one paragraph, it's one paragraph in 80 pages, about double genocide and the proposal for an international Red-Brown Memorial Day to replace Holocaust Memorial Day in other countries. That week, there were six United States senators in Vilnius, and I managed to get three of them to, what's the right word for a a party, an informal party, that was the same week. And they said to me, we didn't know, understand anything about this. We came here to fight anti-Semitism. The Lithuanian government put on a big conference about anti-Semitism. This gets back to what we were saying before, that not everybody who puts on a conference about anti-Semitism is sincere. It's the best way to camouflage all this is to put on a conference. So anyway, I named a few of the senators in a friendly article after that. In 2008, the press and then prosecutors started investigations of two dear friends of mine, women in their late 80s who are now in their early 90s, Fania Bransovsky, that's me holding the picture of her family in the early 30s at the same address. Anyhow, Fania was in the Vilna ghetto, escaped, and very bravely fought in the partisans against the Nazis, is a hero to the free world. Uh, that's Fania down there, lower left, the only one to survive from her entire family. So on May 5th, 2008, police turned up uh, looking for her um, and for Rojo Margolis. That is Fania near the, um, the place where she lived with the partisans. It's now disappearing because the government considers it a uh, lair of bandits, the Soviet partisans who fought against Hitler. Uh, it's, it, and this particular uh, remnant of a, of a Soviet partisan fort, it was actually a Jewish fort of 103 residents in these holes, Zimyankis, bunkers, whatever they are, 99 were Jews, were Jews from the Vilna ghetto who had fled mostly uh, in the summer and in September of 1943 when the ghetto was liquidated. So one of our one of our many Don Quixote or Don Quixote demands is that it be preserved as a, to commemorate this incredible will to live and courage of these people who survived there. Rojo Margolis, who is now 91 years old, uh, is hated even more by the nationalist establishment because she rediscovered and transcribed the lost diary kept by a Christian witness of the murders of about 70,000 Jews at Panar, Panare, outside Vilnius. Uh, Kazimierz Sakovic, uh, who was in, in the end killed himself. It's a fascinating story. When Sakovic understood he'd be killed, he hid all of his pages of the diary in jars in his garden. The Soviet army put it in some secret place after the war. Rojo Margolis, a dashing beauty in her early 20s, was a volunteer in the Jewish Museum run by two Yiddish poets, Avram Sutzkevel and Shmerke Kaczaginski, and they told her where in the Soviet archives those jars with the diary are kept. 50 years goes by, 
and in the 1990s, because there's a new democratic Lithuania and no more Soviet Union, she's able to go to the archive, find them, transcribe them, only to find this new difficulty that she's now an enemy of the people because she published the diary of a Christian witness who tells the truth about who the killers were. That's the English, uh, the English book, Panari Diary, Yale University Press, 2005. Okay, so I told you on 28th of May 2008, the Prosecutor General's office issued a press release saying we can't find these two women. And then there were thousands of internet comments, the Jews are hiding their war criminals. How dare Fein Zerf and the Wiesenthal Center come looking for our war criminals. Suddenly there's a symmetry of war criminals. No charges, no accusations, just defamation. Uh, Rachel Margolis is still in the Rehovot, can't go back to Vilna, she would love to see her native Vilna one last time, but if any of you visit Israel, please visit her, she's very lonely out there. Now, what has been our diplomatic fight back? And here I have to be careful not to exaggerate because we have accomplished very, very little and I, I'm the first to know that. Uh, we are a very small crew of uh, people with no power. That year, 2008, this is only from, how do you say Hashem is Baruch in English? <laughs> Not quite, no. God, God, that's the one. Yeah. <laughs> Higher powers, I think, is the ecumenical neutral term. For, in 2007-2008, all my, my drinking mates in Vilna were the ambassadors of the Western countries. I don't know how it happened, but it happened. So I told my dear friend, Donald Denham, the Irish ambassador, that as a, the prosecutor says Fania is a war criminal. He said, what? I'm going to make a banquet for her, I am. And he did. And um, the uh, Lithuanian foreign ministry protested to the Irish foreign ministry, asking that he be recalled. And on this one occasion, the Irish did the right thing and extended him for a year to 2010. Anyhow. Um, this was a very brave thing to do. He invited the entire Lithuanian government, but nobody came. Um, there was one Lithuanian diplomat who stumbled in by mistake. And then he came to us begging to take him out of the picture with Photoshop. And I'm not against you guys. I'm not for you guys. It's nothing to do with me. I have a family. Incredible stuff. Um, they couldn't do anything for Margolis, so I organized an evening uh, in her honor in Tel Aviv a year later, in June 2009. The only Yiddishist organization that wanted to know was the Levik House, based Levik, led by Daniel Galai, whom I'd like to publicly thank. And this was fascinating. The second from left is Chen Ivri Apta, the late Israeli ambassador to the Baltic, sadly passed away from cancer this year, very young age. Chen Ivri Apta said, you know, David, what should I do? My foreign ministry doesn't allow me to come um, as an ambassador. So I will come with my own money and announce that I'm coming in my own name. And he gave a beautiful speech, which we've just put on the internet now, with his wife's permission after he passed away. Um, and in his speech, he says, this is not only about Rachel Margolis, it's about a plot to change the whole history. He's, um, and we'll get to the Israeli and American politics a little later. 
And finally, in 2011, we convinced Gordon Brown, you know what happens when the prime minister loses an election, he sits at home, he has nothing to do, and then welcomes every nudnik who comes in with a start. So uh, with our encouragement, he wrote a beautiful article in The Independent. That he okay, in 2008, there was a new tolerance in all three Baltic states of anti-Semitism, now, what's the right word for this? Upgraded. Let me give you an example. The marches in Latvia and Estonia honoring the Waffen-SS and the marches of the neo-Nazis in Lithuania used to be permitted in out-of-the-way places on out-of-the-calendar out days. But from 2008, again, this is all after EU and NATO accession, they're put on to Independence Day on the main boulevard of the capital. Now, again, my teachers in all this were the wonderful old Yiddish-speaking people. Whenever I'm in Vilnius, I do our laying cries, as all Yiddishists do a reading circle. And every Wednesday at 1, we would meet with about 20, 25, elder, mostly elderly Jews from Vilna, and usually say charmingly, fight with each other. I want to read. You called on her twice. <laughs> and the day after this in 2008, nobody wants to read. And I see something's wrong, and I didn't understand. I know about the march, but I didn't understand what it is to them. And then finally, one of them said, Did you see on television they were yelling, Judenraus, and the Lithuanian rhyme that translates, take the Jew off the ladder and kill him. And they said this was on the main boulevard of our capital on the Independence Day. So I began to understand. Um, a little bit better from them, who are my teachers not only in Yiddish dialects but in these things too, um, that things were getting worse. Uh, that's, there are some skinheads, but very many middle and upper middle class people from the universities and so on. That's the Lithuanian swastika with extra lines to signify the pillars of Gidiminas. Gidimin or Gidiminas was one of the great grand dukes of Lithuania who founded the city of Vilna in 1320, was a tolerant pagan who invited to his city people of all backgrounds and would be turning over in his grave that they call it his kind of swastika. But there we are. You see, even after all that, the Jews are still fighting for their heritage in, in all these countries. Um, and from 2009, you had front page um, caricatures like this. That's the Jew and the gay holding up the world. And inside, I brought some copies if anybody wants to take home a souvenir from tonight, let me know later. Um, there were, to get around some obscure law, they had to make it look like they're reprinting their own older front page. Anyway, those are all minor details. But the article inside explains to you how, where have I, yeah explains that the Jews and gays in America have conspired to cause the recession in Lithuania. But nothing else to do. They're sitting together, the Jews and the gays, in the council, and they say, how are we going to screw the Lithuanian economy? Oh. I mean, so this is, uh, this is the intelligence. That's the 80-plus chairman of our community, Dr. Alperovich, shown with a Soviet abacus and how he's tricking people to take their money away. Um, in June 2008, a new law is passed equally banning Nazi and Soviet symbols. Now, that's the BBC headline. 
quite rightly, for them, the news was the Lithuanian ban on Soviet symbols, because you assume Nazi symbols are banned. Now, what's this really all about? It's about saying that the last survivors of, of the war against Hitler, the last veterans, Jewish, Russian, Belarusian, and indeed Lithuanian, who used to love dressing up in their uniforms and drinking together on May 9th, Victory Day, could no longer do so legally. If they did it in their homes, they'd be lucky nobody would notice. So, of course, they continued to do it with a lot of humor, let them come and get me, and not have many uh, videos of that. Um, Okay, in 2010, swastikas were permitted by one court in Klaipeda, the former Memel, as an ancient symbol of the Baltic peoples. Um, by then, there was no protest from the Americans, the Israelis, the British, or anyone else, and we'll get to that politics in a little while. Um, again, a very bitter blow to, uh, to elderly Jews. In June 2010, when the Fides, the right-wing party, came to power in Hungary, one of the first laws they passed was a law making it illegal to deny Nazi or Soviet genocide. Now, what does that mean? That if I say, I think Soviet crimes were horrific and horrendous and should be exposed and punished, I don't think that it was genocide the way the Holocaust was genocide. I could go to prison for three years in Hungary according to this new law that I have defied the, the equal sign. Well, uh, Lithuanians had, had uh, proposed such a law a year before, but didn't have the courage to pass it until the Hungarian law. So in June 2010, the same month, about 10 days later, um, the law was passed two years in prison for trivialization of international crimes by the USSR and Nazi Germany to the detriment of the Republic of Lithuania. I think they owe me at least 20 years in prison. And uh, if they put me in prison, they have to give me vegetarian food <laughs> by the laws of the European Union. <laughs> okay. In 2011, the Lithuanian Parliament announces two separate programs of memorialization. The 70th anniversary of the breakout of the Holocaust in 1941, and the 70th anniversary of that great revolt of 1941, the Lithuanian Activist Front. Um, so, on 23 June 2011, the day the Holocaust was starting in Lithuania, there was a gala ball at which the previous president, Adam Kuss, was the host, and everybody got one of these lovely cards with the Nazi symbol and the swastika to commemorate the good old days when we were fighting the Russians. And uh, that's from this year's parades. And in 2012, perhaps the worst thing of all happened this year. In May, um, tens of thousands of dollars were spent to repatriate from Putnam, Connecticut, the remains of Yozas Ambazavitris Brazaitis, the Nazi puppet prime minister of 1941, who personally signed the paper saying that all Jews of Kovna must be put in a ghetto within one month, personally signed the papers for setting up a concentration camp, and it was not a concentration camp, it was a, a mass murder site. Um, with full honors and glittering ceremonies. Um, okay, now during all this time, like the other countries, I don't want you to think I'm picking on Lithuania, it's the same in Latvia and Estonia, there have been massive investments in Jewish projects to bring important Jews from around the world and give them these wonderful, wonderful uh, experiences in Vilnius. In the middle of Vilnius, there, there are two 
beautifully restored premises, a Jewish culture and information center. Uh, the old Jews say to each other, Sinish talking Okay, and the Vilnius Jewish Public Library, which is a long, complicated story, but there's no Jews and no library, but there's a beautiful premises. And when naive um, Jews come in the summer from America, from Israel, they are given royal welcomes there. Now there are plans announced for a big new Vilnius Yivo to a big new Vilna ghetto theme park, the Jewish Art Museum, Litvak Culture Center, and on and on and on. Meanwhile, the campaign against the Jewish partisans has meant permanent defamation. If you're a government and an EU, NATO country, and you launch a, crime, a war crimes investigation, you never apologize, you never announce the investigation. This is Wikipedia taken uh, today, the 13th December, that's today, yes. Um, Yitzhak Arad. There are two lines on his academic career and six lines about him as a suspected war criminal. And this isn't only about Yitzhak. By the way, if any of you uh, contribute to Wikipedia, please try your best. It's not easy. They have guys quickly changing it back, but it's one of the, of the ongoing silly uh, internet battles. Um, it's not only against Yitzhak Arad. It is a part of a history-changing narrative that they were also worse as, as one prosecutor told me, these people all speak to me, I don't know why, but they still speak to me, told me at an embassy party, he said, ah, we have won. I said, congratulations, what have you won? And he says, 20 years from now, all the books will say that our prosecutors equally investigated Nazi and Soviet alleged suspects of war crimes, and in both cases they died before these investigations could come to full fruition. So that's what it's all about. Um, the opposition to the double genocide movement, again, I'm, I'm in danger of exaggerating, it's been very small and minimal. Um, we got seven ambassadors to sign a, a letter to that effect. Ambassadors of Britain, Estonia, Finland, France, Netherlands, Norway, and Sweden. The Americans and the Israelis wouldn't come near us <laughs> by 2010. Um, I had that sentence about that they cannot be considered equal. The Estonian ambassador very bravely signed against the instructions of his own country, and he's no longer the ambassador. <laughs> Um, after a long and bitter and, I don't know what to call it, amateur, silly um, email campaign, four of us working in different countries did manage to kill the last attempt to get double genocide in the Stockholm Declaration. It was the first failure of the movement. One of the articles written against us said, Ephraim, Zorov, and Dovid Katz are secretly supported by millions of dollars from <coughs> Russian business sources. How did I? But this, uh, I guess it's an underhanded compliment that with the internet age, a few people can throw enough missiles to get something. So it is a little bit stalled in Europe. There are three major opposition websites, Operation Last Chance, that's Ephraim, Zorov, the Association of Lithuanian Jews in Israel, the last Litvaks, led by an incredible guy, Joe Malamed, 87 now, and our own Defending History, where I'm joined by one 
um, member of the Jewish community, Milan Chersonsky, and Jeff Vasil, uh, uh, um, an American of Lithuanian heritage, who came slowly to the. But in this March, the last survivors from the Association of Lithuanian Jews led a picket line. I didn't mean to cut off their heads. That's my technical uh, ability. This was a big gala dinner by South African Jewish businessmen of Litvak origin in honor of the Lithuanian foreign minister, who has many times, had many times made anti-Semitic comments and has supported double genocide. And Joe Malamud is carrying the sign, where is your conscience? Where is your solidarity? Dear diners, so I think you kind of, it's very nice. Dear diners, because it was a dinner, okay? And um, the other one is from base lately. Um, in 2012, a young man from Australia called Danny Ben Moshe had this great idea that we could make our declaration to answer the Prague Declaration. So I'll leave you with a souvenir tonight of the 70 Years Declaration. And if there aren't enough, we'll be able to send it to you. I'll leave, before I forget, leave you with other souvenirs of our cards, if you can. Thank you. One um, now, the 70 Years Declaration, signed by 71 parliamentarians, specifically has language saying we reject the Proud Declaration, we reject the negation of the Holocaust, um, and, uh, it has served a very small purpose of stalling this big movement. I say stalling because we know how, how weak we are. Uh, that's a copy proudly on the wall. Um, the Australian documentary company that uh, did the film Rewriting History this year sent me to Strasbourg to deliver it to Martin Schulz, the president of the European Parliament last March, where he promised that he would do his best to keep the double genocide documents. Uh, sorry, did I? Yeah, uh, from coming. Next week, there's a very big conference in London, sponsored by the Lithuanian government, and one very brave Londoner, Monica Lowenberg, is now in all, well, is in touch with all the London media about whether her international petition can be read, whether she can have five minutes to read a petition to the Lithuanian government, all of it with constructive solutions to apologize to the Jewish partisans, to stop the campaign for double genocide, and so forth. I'd like to finish with the geopolitics, um, the Americans and the Israelis. In the case of the United States, uh, having known American diplomats in the region for many years, they tell you the truth. They say that we personally don't care one way or the other. We care for the interests of the United States. The Baltic states and what Rumsfeld called New Europe, the East European countries, they supported us with blood and treasure in Afghanistan and Iraq, and in the case of Lithuania, allegedly with a CIA prison facility that may still exist. So this is fascinating. What does Lithuania want in return besides financial aid? What does it want? Support for the revision of history, fixing the Holocaust. You know, it's very hard for Westerners to understand how deeply obsessed or passionate Easterners are about this. I remember the famous Jay Leno guy, where he, Jay walking, he walks in the street, finds a young person, says, what do you do? I'm a history major. Okay, who is Benjamin Franklin? Um, 
and then, and then I start thinking, how wonderful! This kid who doesn't know Benjamin Franklin will never hurt anybody. And there, it's such an obsession that will allow our young people to die in Afghanistan and Iraq. You want a prison, we'll make a prison, we'll torture them with everything. But there have to be two genocides. You understand? There have to be two genocides and the Russian genocide. So it is a major foreign policy objective. In the case of Israel, Israel obviously needs diplomatic support urgently, very often in a way much deeper than America, where it goes to issues of, of existence, of existential things. So, you, you probably heard um, in the recent uh, UN vote in the General Assembly that only the Czech Republic um, so, uh, wouldn't vote for the um, non-voting status for the, for the Palestinians in the General Assembly. And a year ago, Lithuania had a sensational UNESCO vote, being one of the very few countries that voted with Israel on, on the UNESCO thing. And again, the, the Lithuanian ambassador who's in Riga often comes to him, what do you want me to do? We need them. Said, okay, okay. <laughs> in other words, they personally know that there's something very wrong here. Um, but it is, so geopolitics is mixing in in a way that's making this battle much, much more difficult because we didn't get involved in this to be arguing with America and Israel. Um, okay, I think I'll stop there and ask for your questions and comments. And I don't know how much. We start from the back. Yes. All of the presentations that you provided, how does it lend itself to today thinking about Israel and Zionism in this country? In this country? In Lithuania. In? In, in Lithuania. In the Baltic country. Okay. Thinking so, about Zionism and Jews. Zionism and Israel, first of all, to the small remnant declining, demographically declining Jewish community, Israel and Zionism are the greatest sources of pride and hope. I remember in 1990 seeing tears in the eyes of Jews when they saw an Israeli flag on, on a diplomat's car that was coming for the first time at the end of this. So for the Jews, of course, not only that, so many Jews have migrated to Israel that all the Jews left have a daughter or a niece. Or a, so the ties with Israel are very deep. Then we come to the much more difficult question. What do these countries really think about Israel and Zionism? Well, the official policy now, as you saw, is very pro-Israel, very pro-Zionist. They never heard of Palestine or Palestinians. They hate Arabs and Muslims anyway. So there isn't an issue there. <clears throat> However, when pe in my view now, when people are anti-Semites, it's only a matter of time before many of these facades are broken. Three years ago, the late ambassador, Henry Apta, came to me privately. David, you were right. I said, what was I right about? He said, the same student union that invested in an Israel course just invited the Iranian ambassador from Warsaw, and they arranged 3,000 kids to So in other words, it was whoever will be a better partner for them in strategic, military, economic, and other areas. Money. Money, Money of course. Secondly, um, a number of newspapers this year, for the first time, started running articles accusing Israel of genocide in Gaza, and that never happened before. So uh, all of these political alliances are about bedfellows and the needs so of the moment. Yes, Stanley. Yeah. Uh, 
Uh, David, would you comment on the irony of the Avram Sutskara translation contest? Uh, Sutskara, of course, was a partisan, so Lithuanians <laughs> having this contest, they would criminalize him if he were alive, but they're having a contest. Absolutely. Avram Sutskara, the great Yiddish poet who passed away several years ago deep in his 90s, was a famous Soviet partisan, and there's a famous picture of him with the rifle. Um, now, once Sutskever died, the Lithuanian uh, officials in the culture ministry announced that this is a fantastic guy to make a big Yiddish thing of here in Vilna. So they put up a plaque. They made a big ceremony around the plaque. They have commissioned the translation of Sutskever's poems into the Lithuanian. On and on and on. And I mean, my last conversation with Sutskova was him yelling at me, how do you even go back there? After they started accusing uh, Jewish partisans of being war criminals. So it's, it's hilariously funny if you see the, the funny side that they're now having a translation contest for Sutskova while they will not apologize or withdraw the accusations against the Jewish partisans who are still alive. Yitzchak, Arad, Fania Bransovsky, Rachel Margolis, Sarah Aginaita, and several others, yeah. So it, it's a good Sorry. Sorry. Uh, sorry. Finish. No, I don't know. I want to ask you a question. Oh, please, yeah. Okay. Um, can you comment, uh, Tim Snyder, professor at Yale mm -hmm. University, who actually played a role in helping to close down ESA, mm -hmm. and he's now a member of the new entity uh, studying anti-Semitism at Yale that does not deal with contemporary issues. Tim Snyder played a role there. He wrote a very important book uh, on bloodlines which I understand touches on these double genocide theories. Could you sort of update the, the right. his contribution on an academic level, the impact on an mm -hmm. academic level, and what he's doing kind of politically networking in the politics? Absolutely. Tim Snyder is a world-famous professor at Yale University. He's produced a number of first-rate books on East European uh, history and countries. A few years ago, he produced his most sensational book called Bloodlands, in which he flirts with double genocide to the liking of the Baltic revisers of history. The book Bloodlands has different passages that can be read in different ways by different audiences. In some parts of it, he says what the Nazis did is completely incomparable to anything else. And then in the next chapter, this was all a Soviet Nazi a play coming to fruition. Um, now, when he comes to Eastern Europe, Tim Snyder is immediately received by the foreign minister, way before the culture minister, or any of the historians, the president, because his book, Bloodlands, came closest of any Western author to the revised theory of two equal genocides. When the Lithuanian translation of Bloodlands was <laughs> launched, um, it turned into an orgy of hate against the Jewish partisans, all quoting one line from Snyder's book, which is not all that bad, but he says that the Jewish partisans, like anyone else, committed not nice things. But when, when that line became the theme of the whole evening, he didn't say one word in protest. I publicly called on him uh, to protest. Now, I've been involved in the following debates with Tim Snyder. Before his book came out, the Guardian in America, I think its comment is free, uh, Matt Seaton, uh, invited him to write an essay that would summarize his ideas about World War II and the Holocaust. And then 
very wisely or unwisely invited Ephraim Zorf and myself to write replies. And so that was our first debate. And in his article in The Guardian, Snyder went much further toward the Baltic revisionist uh, side than he did in the actual book. The second debate was held by video teleconference in Australia in um, June of 2011, organized by Mark Baker. And Jan Gross, a famous professor at Princeton who wrote Neighbors about Poland, um, was shocked by how far Snyder was willing to go at the conference beyond what he'd ever written. But things really came to a head this past May during the reburial of Jozas um, Ambrazavichus Brazaitis, the 1941 Nazi puppet prime minister. To cover up the reburial of this major Nazi collaborator, the Lithuanian government put on a symposium about the Holocaust honoring Tim Snyder. Other uh, participants included the director of Evo, a professor from Pennsylvania, and several others. This conference took place as the remains were in flat on the way to Vilnius. They, were, they arrived about six hours. Not a word about the reburial and the travesty of holding such a symposium when your, your real activity this week is, is glory. Um, then Snyder was asked about it by a Lithuanian journalist at his press conference the next day. Uh, what do you think of this reburial? Of, this, um, the, of the Nazi puppet prime minister. And Snyder said, I'll be very careful. I think you should think carefully before you rebury someone, which I found a very unacceptable and, and morally, actually morally bankrupt. Coming from an American professor, there was nothing to be afraid of when he's uh, visiting. But between this banquet in the foreign ministry and the other banquet in another ministry and another gold medal and another voice, so, the strange thing for me is that in our internet age, there are no secrets. Anybody who wants can see what he said there and what he said here. So Snyder has become the biggest ammunition for the revisionists. I'll give one example of that. The outgoing foreign minister of the previous Lithuanian uh, government, uh, Arjubalis, uh, prepared a document, what we want to do in 2013, in the second half of 2013, when Lithuania will hold the rotating chairmanship of the European Union. One of the top seven points is to ensure that all of Europe understands the two totalitarian regimes that cause so much tragedy in Europe with the use of Timothy Snyder's book, Bloodlands, as a textbook to be translated into all European languages. Now, there are some passages in Bloodlands that those guys don't like, but they're willing to overlook that because never has a mainstream Western scholar come so close to the far-right pro-fascist ideas uh, now emanating from Eastern Europe. So it's, for me, a little bit inexplicable because um, I don't understand it. Sorry. So, Joel, afterwards, Joel? No, I was just saying, you got about five minutes. Oh, okay. Oh, sorry, I went on too long. I should have asked. I'm interested to know what are the reactions about these shenanigans, both in Russia and in Germany? Is there any public reaction or reaction? Germany has had very little interest. There are a few individuals in Germany who are interested. 
the, the new president of Germany, Gauck, himself signed the Prague Declaration. He's an East German by origin and shares many of the East European views. But um, the Germans have not shown us any, any great support. The Russians have set up an organization called World Without Nazism that does a lot of monitoring and perhaps good work, but we're afraid to touch it because we're considered part of the... I went to two conferences, and then I found on Wikipedia and elsewhere, Dovid Kerst, the representative of World Without Nazism. And, um, so the Russians have, but uh, it's not a sophisticated operation that has any impact. But that. have the Russians recognized the atrocities of a communist regime? Many have and many haven't. So it's a real problem. Yes? So, um, first of all. But please you. speak very loudly. Yeah. Yeah. I'm old and deaf. Yeah. All right. Thank you very much. This was hugely informative. There was very little material here I'd seen before. So this was all this was all new to me. But as you were speaking, I came up with four observations that feed into a single question. The first one is that you're describing people who didn't set out to be anti-Semitic. They set out to crack their own narrative. And right. found, the Jews, found the Jewish narrative in their way. Now, the second thing is then uh, the observation that Hitler and Stalin were two sides of the same coin didn't originate with these folks, and it didn't originate anti-Semitically. The best, the best and earliest right. articulation I know of is Hannah Arendt, yes. the Arabian. Um, so, so there is there is basis for this. There's an intellectual tradition yeah. that goes back earlier, yeah, certainly and, and, about Stalin and Hitler, and not necessarily about. Nazi and Soviet crimes being yeah. but anyway, yes. The, um, the third is that um, we have a problem in the West today is we have a victimization culture. Yeah. And so, you know, people simultaneously, you, you have uh, one group of people who want to show that they are victims, uh, and therefore, you know, show that they are victims, therefore worthy of sympathy like all other victims. And you've got another group that's attempting to show that, <laughs> that's attempting to counter the argument, sorry, you have another group that is attempting to show that Western culture has been uniquely horrible and therefore, you know, is not worthy of any support anywhere in the world today. Um, and the fourth observation is that periods when the Jews have been, have been most sharply oppressed have generally been weak periods of history. And as we say, shit runs downhill. Um, so that most of the peasants who really came and attacked the Jews through large parts of history were not well-adjusted, well-treated people themselves. They were, in fact, victims of someone else. So when you have these four things coming together, <coughs> these are all you know, accurate observations and reasonable things for people to focus in on. What is the smartest strategy that we can take for dealing with it? Because you, you can't deny things that are accurate that are more relevant to other people than perhaps our attraction. Yeah. Very big issue is what's called trivialization. What, what's one person's major point is a side point for the other. One example, the Allied victory against Hitler, something very important in Western culture, is rubbished completely in Eastern Europe as some minor and significant detail that led to one totalitarian regime being replaced by another. I would hope that the forced revision of history, the criminalization of narratives, uh, racist, anti-Semitic, homophobic parades on independence, that there are many things that we can all unite around in the current battle, and that America, Israel, and other countries perhaps can find ways without rupturing ties to nonetheless 
have a diversity of views. Yes? No, could you comment on what's happening in Poland? Do you see any, right. any parallels? Um, mm -hmm. Very briefly, it's a topic for a whole other day. Poland is very different. The Nazis invaded uh, most of Poland in September of 1939, yet Wagner and that area was the area that fell to the Soviet side. So the Polish experience is of the evil Nazis from the start. That's one very big difference for Muslims. A second big difference, Poland is today a much larger and more mature European country than any of the Baltic states, and I have found in Poland you do find all of this, but you always find a second opinion, and no one's getting in trouble for having a second opinion. Yes. I am I very disturbed. Oh, yes. so, please go ahead, but this will be the final. Final question. Thank you. I am very disturbed with the Holocaust Museum in Warsaw, where the Poles don't go there, but the tourists of America. And now I see another one, summer program called the Auschwitz Museum, a summer program. Come and join us. Auschwitz Museum. Can you comment, Doctor? It's difficult. It's hard. You know, very often uh, many institutions are being built only for foreigners and tourists and not for local people. Maybe I've been, whatever, hardened too much by the Baltic experience. If their museums would not have exhibits falsifying history, anti-Semitic exhibits, exhibits turning the murderers into heroes, I wouldn't care who goes there and who doesn't go there. So I have a lower bar coming from a little bit further east in here. Thank you. So, on behalf of everybody, Donald, thank you very much for your amazing presentation and your important vital work. May it continue for a long time.